Welcome to the School of the Forest podcast, episode nine. Welcome to the School of the Forest podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Russell. This podcast aims to educate you about outdoor living skills, give you a first-person approach to wilderness ecology, and provide you with a glimpse into the different methods people are using for sustainable living. To find out more about our programs, please visit schoolofforest.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm virtually joined today by a friend and student of mine, Nora Gordon. How are you doing, Nora? I'm great, Christopher. <laughs> uh, we've <laughs> actually been working together a lot lately, so it's, it feels a little weird to just be um, going through the motions of the niceties on a, on a Zoom meeting because we've been working together at the school Nora teaches at. So before I continue introducing you, you should, uh, you should tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. And, uh, and the topic today is dying, so you should tell us a little bit of how you got interested in that, and, uh, and you should explain what kind of dying I mean. <laughs> right now, it sounds, it sounds a, little, a little morose. Yeah, and I actually only just learned how to spell this word last year, which is really embarrassing, but true. There is an E in dying. And uh, so I, I guess primarily, um, I'm rather crafty and my one of my big focuses is fiber arts uh particularly wool um and knitting and i really like 10 or 12 years ago in a period of of not much money realized that it would be much better if i could make my own yarn instead of buying it because it's expensive and um, so I learned how to spin, and that led me to learning how to dye that yarn. Um, and so I've just been kind of doing a deep dive ever since into how to make color and then really how to make color in a sustainable and um, environmentally friendly way. So tell me a little bit more about that. When you say making color, if I just, uh, if I just went outside and picked up grass, would I get green from that? Um, you might actually, I, um, I came at this with the, like, with the mindset of like, I want to get certain colors. Like if I want to get green, what do I use? And that's one way to do it. But I think a more, um, sort of organic way to think about color is that pretty much everything out there that's growing and alive will stain and create some kind of color right? Like you fall down in the grass on your pants and you get a grass stain. That's a dye. It might not be light fast and it might not be wash fast and it might change over time, but it is creating color. So everything creates color of some kind. Um, it sometimes needs sort of assistance to become permanent and to be the color, you know, that you want. If you're looking for a particular color, then you really have to know what is it that you're looking for? So you use two terms there, which is light fast and uh, was it dye fast? Uh, wash fast. Wash fast. Can you explain what those are? Because I, I, I have no idea what that means. And I'm sure a lot of other people don't either. Yeah. So like, um, I think a lot of us have had the experience where we buy something new and we put it in the washing machine with all our regular clothes and everything else turns pink because <laughs> it had extra dye in it, right? Or it wasn't really attached well to the uh, fabric. Um, and so something that's wash fast doesn't 
let go of its color when you wash it and it keeps the same color, hopefully for multiple washes, especially if you wash it gently. Um, and light fast, I've also had the experience you leave something long enough, your old t-shirt <laughs> out on the line long enough, it fades, right? Um, and again, I don't know, I don't know any, uh, I don't know any guides that don't have shirts that are like the shoulders on them are a totally different color than the rest of the shirt. If you're, especially canoe guides, if you're out on the water and that light is just reflecting up. I didn't know there was a term for that. I just thought I was dirty. Um, right. But, ah, good to know. I have, I have an excuse for when people tell me my shirts are faded. It's, it's, uh, totally. it's not light fast anymore. <laughs> And most, I mean, honestly, it's pretty hard to come by uh, a even a chemical dye that is actually going to stay the same exact color through washings and through wearing. And um, one of the things that I love about talking to some natural dyers I've been hanging out with is that if you can embrace that change, if you can like enjoy the fact or design for the fact that there's going to be change over time in your color, it actually allows for greater creativity and like planning for, um, you know, maybe you like leave your fabric that you've dyed with some kind of stencil on it in the sun and you actually get, you print with the sun. Um, huh. uh, so I, I think in general, like the baseline for dyeing is that you do want it to be permanent. That's the, usually the goal but there's different levels of permanence. So you mentioned hanging out with other uh, sort of people that are into dying. How did you, did you just find them as you were getting interested in this or did you know them previously? I, so um, I had been dabbling for several years and um, not really getting serious. And then I happened to be in a craft fair with, um, Another, well, I met a, a now great friend, Hannah Regeer, um, at a craft fair locally uh, two years ago, who is really, um, I would say, uh, she's just an incredible mentor and I think a real expert, in, locally anyway. Um, the only person I really know who has this kind of level of engagement um, with natural dyeing. Um, she, so her business is called Sky Like Snow, and I highly recommend um, folks check her out. She makes her living making um, hats and scarves that are entirely, they're dyed um, entirely from things that she forages or grows in her backyard. And they're gorgeous. I mean, they're just, they're works of art. Um, and so she really, uh, she runs classes and I took her class and got to use like, I don't know, we did maybe like 10 or 12 different dye baths in a two day session. It was really intensive. We did some foraging and I th feel like um, that kind of set me up to like, th this is, these are the principles. This is what we're, what I, how I can approach this. And then I kind of can expand on that and look at other dyes and, and my own backyard. And so that's what I've been doing for the past two years. So you mentioned that you guys were doing um, 
foraging for materials to dye with? Is there, are there particular things that you were looking for or did you just try stuff and see what works? Well, I'm wor working with Hannah. She obviously has a pretty strong knowledge of, of what works. Uh, and she's working off of other, you know, this is, a, this is an ancient practice. I mean, um, we're just, we're just newcomers to this, this practice all over the world, but certainly here in New England, um, there are plants and fungi um, that are, uh, and sort of in the fungi category, we could include lichen um, that are traditional dye plants that have been found to work really well. Um, so yeah, so she, so we look for um, things that grow out in the woods, in the fields, and then also think about what kinds of plants you could cultivate in your garden or your yard that might not grow naturally, but might also like, instead of impacting the wild population, if you can cultivate it in your garden, that might, that might be a good approach, a more sustainable approach. It might also, um, you know, not be great depending on whether you're using like a, um, a cultivar of something that's being made in a, you know, in a greenhouse or something and spreading seeds that might not be the native seeds or whatever. But so those are the two places you can look, you can think about as you're like dye larder is the hmm. natural world and your cultivated world. So what, uh, well, what species or, uh, you know, types of things have you found that you really enjoyed working with? So uh, the things that I did a lot of work with this summer that were easy to find, because I'm kind of still a beginner here, um, goldenrod, super gorgeous, like crazy bright yellow, a little like can have green tinge to it. You can use the whole plant, the flower and the stem and uh, chop it up and cook it up. It's like super easy. It smells amazing. Hmm grows in my backyard like crazy. Um, so it feels really abundant, which is another thing that's um, important when you're thinking about sustainability. Are you like taking everything of something that exists out there? Or are you like just taking a small bit and leaving enough to reproduce? So goldenrod feels really abundant. Um, another thing that I'm really loving that isn't as abundant is lichen. And particularly um, the lichens that they're called C plus lichens, which is referring to the um, uh, chemicals in, that they create in their tissue. They make this incredible purple. It is just, it is bright. It is, it can be neon purple, but um, just this range of pinks to purples. Um, and there's a couple of different ones that are around here that I'm, familiar enough with that I can positively identify them. Um, Punctilia rudecta is one. Umbilicaria is another one. Um, problem with lichen or the beauty of lichen is this uh, slow growing organism and, um, and really, really fragile. I mean, they're very, uh, they're intolerant, most of them of pollution. And so it's a real, um, bioindicator of pollution when there's no lichen around. Um, so 
I've been learning about how to collect lichens sustainably and only, you, you know, that purple becomes like a really special color that you only use a little bit of. Sure. So with goldenrod and with the lichen, maybe it's a little more obvious, but the has, have you used any particular plants that you got a color that you wouldn't have imagined from it where, you know, it started out red and the color you ended up getting was, I don't know, neon green or something strange like that. Um, Cause are you, when you're doing this, you're just cooking it down or are you adding any like activators or things like that to it? Okay. So there's, there's a lot of different sort of components depending on what you're using. It just depends on the chemistry of the plant or, or whatever fungus. Um, it, so yeah, it can be really surprising. <laughs> it definitely doesn't have to follow the color of the plant. Um, although I have to say that there's a good indication if something has a strong color, it's very likely that it will dye a color. Um, so one thing that is important with most sort of flower leaf kind of things, roots sometimes, is uh, a mordant. And a mordant is a uh, metal salt that helps basically, you know, the goldenrod pigment in the goldenrod is not really designed to connect with the uh, fiber in wool they're not really gonna directly connect to each other. So you need a little connector piece in between. So that's the mordant. So you soak the wool in a mordant and the mordant attaches to the wool. And then when you put that in your dye bath, the dye attaches to the mordant. And depending on the mordant, you can get different colors with the same dye. Um, so I use alum, which I think the full name, I have it written down because I can never remember, hydrated potassium aluminum sulfate. And it's the least toxic mordant out there that's um, sort of readily like generally used. Um, it's available in your grocery store. People use it for pickling. So it's not like, it's not to highly toxic. It isn't great to breathe in the fumes, but it's not terrible. You don't need a ventilator. Um, the other mordants like iron is fine too. You can um, put like a old bunch of rusty nails or something in a pot, but iron really changes the color and it can be a cool tool for that. It also can um, affect the fibers. I've heard that particularly wool can get brittle with too much iron. So it's sort of not the best mordant for wool as a like primary soak. And then other things you can use are copper and tin and chrome. And those are all pretty, pretty toxic things, heavy metals. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and they do cool things to the colors, but they don't, um, but, but they're in terms of like sustainability and, uh, being environmentally friendly. They're not the best options. I imagine it also doesn't lend itself to an at-home operation. If it's that toxic, you probably need like big vats that are sealed and stuff like that. Whereas if you're just boiling on your kitchen countertop, maybe having copper boiling in there is not going to be great for the people living in the household. Yeah, totally. Totally. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, iron is not great for wool are there other materials that i work better with or is it is it is this a total case-by-case -case basis with dyeing where you kind of have to pick the three things to go together right otherwise you end up with a subpar product um so the other uh 
fibers that people use. Um, so like I'm a knitter, so I'm like, all right, wool, that's what I'm focused on. But actually there's this huge other piece of fiber art with fabric, right? And that would be, could be wool or it could be silk or it could be cotton. Um, and so obviously silk is another animal protein and, and does sort of similar things like with wool, they have similar properties, but things that are um, plant-based like cotton have a totally different chemistry and shape to their cellular structure. Different things work as mordants or um, fixatives to keep the, the dye connected to the fabric. And there's whole other traditions out there around dyeing fabrics. There's an amazing Japanese tradition of folding. It's sort of like a tie-dye thing. Um, you can fold pieces of iron into the fabric, tie it all up and dip it in a dye bath. And the, where the iron is touching the fabric, it creates different reactions. You get all these different colors. Um, so I haven't done any real experimenting with that, but I've been hanging out with these other folks who do this for a living. And um, the, the fabric world is a whole other crazy, amazing, beautiful thing. <laughs> sure. So walk me through what, if you were going to dye wool to knit with, walk me through what that process looks like. If you're, if you're just at home and you're not a big operation, um, you know, for people that are listening to this and want to give it a shot, what would, what would that look like? So you need, um, the components you need, obviously you need your, your fiber, your wool, and it needs to be clean. So even if you bought it, uh, you know, bought some yarn at the store, I would go ahead and, and soak it in some um, dish soap and water, warm water, don't agitate because obviously you'll felt it. Um, but then rinse it out so that it's really clean enough that um, the, oh, I have to housemate just came on um so walk me through the process of uh of what a day of dying looks like if someone at home wants to get into this what is what do they need and how big of an undertaking is it going to be so it's pretty simple but uh what you need are some clean fiber so in my case wool and even if you've bought your yarn at the store and you think it's pretty clean, it still might have some spinning oils in it from the spinning process. So you wash it in some warm water with a little dish soap. Don't, don't agitate because that will cause it to felt, but just let it soak and then rinse it out. So it's nice and clean. And then you need a dye, uh, sorry, first you need to mordant it. So you do this alum thing, um, it's a 12% by weight solution. So 12% of the weight of your fiber, you put some alum in some warm water, you heat it up with the fiber in it and um, let it sit at 180 degrees Fahrenheit for about an hour to connect. So then your wool is mordanted. Um, the important thing for all of this is that you use a pot, a metal non-reactive pot that is not gonna get used for food again, because even though this is all like natural materials and you know pretty non-toxic, it's not great practice. There are dyes out there that are toxic um, and even plants have some materials in them that are not great to add to your food. So uh, having a dye pot, you know, an old soup pot basically. 
And uh, so in that pot, you're going to make your dye back, which basically, you know, things like the goldenrod or even old onion skins that you have from cooking. Um, I did Dyer's Coreopsis this summer. I grew these really beautiful flowers. You're making a tea with it. So whatever your materials are, you chop them up, you know, just into little chunks and uh, throw them in that pot with, cover them with water, you know, fill it up so that basically you're creating enough liquid that it'll cover your um, fiber. And you cook that material, Not no fiber in there yet. You just make this tea, you cook it, simmer it. You don't want it to be boiling, but you know, simmer it for an hour or even you can let it sit once you've cooked it a little, let it sit overnight to really draw out all that uh, color. And then you can pour it through sieve or something to get all the plants out because you don't really want the plants with your with your uh, wool because then your wool gets covered. It's just then it's a mess, right? So once you've got your dye bath set and your wool is ready, you, you kind of want to keep the wool and the dye bath about the same temperature because wool has these really cool scales on it that will, that's what causes it to felt. And uh, if you increase or decrease temperature really fast, like by putting wool into boiling water, cold wool into hot water, it those scales get crisscrossed and messed up and that increases the chance of the um, felting. So then with the wool in the sort of coolish dye bath, you bring it to 180 degrees, keep it at that for about an hour, check it. Might be good, might take, you know, a couple hours, depending on the color you're looking for. It's always okay to take your, your material out and, and even let it totally dry and see what the color is and then re-dye it again. You can dye over and over and over again. Um, and yeah, once you got the color you want, give it a good rinse and, uh, and let it, you want to let it cool in the dye bath um, and then rinse it. And it it's, probably beautiful <laughs> so if uh people are interested in this do you have any recommendations for resources that they can go look at to get into this so my primary resource has been my friend hannah regeer so like i said i would go to her website which is sky like snow if you just type that in you'll find her um she has a blog um and sort of uh, I don't think she's got it for sale regularly, but I think through her, you certainly could order a really great little um, foraging handbook that she's created. And then beyond that, I've just been doing a lot of Googling and everyone who's doing this seems like has a little blog. And cause it's just like, everyone's got their own approach, their own curiosity. I tried this, I tried that, I put this in with this and it did this. Um, and just basically like trying what other people are trying. I know a lot of people are on Instagram and Facebook and I am a non-social media person, but that's a real resource for artists. Um, so yeah, and then just to put a plug in, um, if you're really excited about dying, I would just do a, a just try looking at what indigo does, the plant indigo, which is obviously a cultivated plant. Um, 
there is a whole world out there of indigo and it is that's that's really the blue that's the blue that we can make is that we can grow here in new england um and it is an amazing process and there are people out there doing amazing things so that's a whole other world to explore <laughs> sure well, cool well we're coming up on the half hour mark and i always like to end these by asking about um a particular it doesn't have to pertain to what we're talking about but a particular experience outdoors that you've had that has kind of stuck with you for a long time um so a hiking trip or it could be a, you know in a few podcasts ago we had a guy talk about uh talk about just his time watching an elk and a wolf chase each other in Yellowstone and how it, you know, he didn't see what came of it, but it just, that memory sticks with him. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of like a, a, a trip or something. Um, the, the biggest thing that I ever have done that I really, um, it's not, it's not really like a wilderness experience, but it's an outdoor experience and a, and a land experience, I think. Um, I rode my bike across the country as a teenager. And obviously I was on roads, but I feel like spending three months living outside, living, like relying on my body to propel me through up and down the hills, living with the weather, um, you know, thinking about the kind of energy that's required for that. I think that's really uh, one of the reasons why I feel so um, passionate about protecting the world, the natural world. I feel like I saw a lot of what is out there, at least in our continent, on the middle of our continent. <laughs> and um, And it felt really important to me that it was there and that I was part of it. Um, so yeah, I think that might be a big component of why I spend so much time outside still. Yeah, that's, a, I mean, long-term trips change, long-term outdoor living changes the way you look at the world, I think. Um, well, that's great. Well, thank you much, very much, Nora, for being on and, uh, thank everybody for listening. If you have any, uh, questions for, Nora about dying, you can send them my way and I'll make sure she gets them. You should, we'll also link to everything in the show notes that we talked about, uh, her friend Hannah's website and any of the other little blogs that come up. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope you have a good one. You've been listening to the School of the Forest podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I hope you share it with a few friends. If you did like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other of the major podcast hosting platforms. And lastly, if you'd like to learn more about School of the Forest programs, please check us out at schoolofthaforest.com and get in touch with us at any of the contact information you'll find on that site. Thanks.